Hello. This is Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Michael Welch. We come to you from our broadcast studio at CJUM in Winnipeg, and we welcome listeners tuning into our show online or from our affiliated campus and community radio stations across Canada. On today's show, with tensions growing around the perceived failure of Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad to comply with the terms of a UN-brokered ceasefire agreement, we'll speak with broadcaster and writer Steve Lendeman about the terms of the ceasefire plan, who is backing it, and how a U.S.-led intervention into Syria could affect the dynamics of the Middle East. We'll also hear from Adri Naylor, an activist with the Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly, on how the recent budget cuts disproportionately affect women. But first, here are the alert headlines for the week of Thursday, April 12th. The Auditor General, Michael Ferguson, delivered a scathing report to Parliament calling on out the Conservatives for ignoring the real costs of purchasing F-35 fighter jets. Ferguson said that specific bureaucrats in the Department of National Defense withheld key data from decision-makers and intentionally underestimated the cost by about $10 billion. In response to the report, Harper said his government will review options for replacing current aircraft now claiming there was never a signed contract for F-35 jets. On CTV's question period, Defense Minister Peter McKay admitted he knew two years ago that the aircraft would cost about $25 billion, not the $15 billion price tag the Conservatives insisted was accurate. The Quebec government offered a concession to students participating in the longest student protest in Quebec history by proposing an extension of student bursaries and the provincial student aid program. Students have largely rejected this offer for not addressing the government's plans to increase tuition fees by $1,625 over five years. Widening eligibility for student loans would only allow more people to be in debt or student organizers say. This government proposal follows a week-long series of economic disruptions and protests and almost eight weeks since the beginning of the strike. Since the release of the federal budget last week, the government has been slowly announcing the details of the cuts. Over the next three years, government funding to the CBC will be cut by about $115 million dollars This has forced the national broadcaster to cut about 650 full-time jobs over the next three years and begin running ads on their radio stations. Details about public service job losses have also begun to surface, which include at least 840 jobs at Health Canada, 1,100 civilian jobs under the Union of Defence Employees, and more than 400 government scientists. The government is planning to cut a total of 19,200 positions. A retired Greek pharmacist killed himself outside Parliament in Athens in protest to the country's severe austerity measures. In his suicide note, Dimitris Christoulas said the appointed government's reforms, quote, annihilated his chances of survival, unquote. 
forcing him to take his own life as, quote, the only dignified solution. Within hours, thousands of Greek protesters gathered to mourn this act of financial murder and to continue protesting the cuts to salaries, pensions, and public services. Christoulas ended his note by predicting that young people with no future will one day take up arms and hang the traitors of this country at Syntagma Square, just like the Italians did to Mussolini in 1945. Unquote. Two years after the British petroleum offshore oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, a new deep water drilling operation is set to begin. Pemex, Mexico's state-owned oil company, plans to sink wells in over 9,000 feet of water. The BP Deepwater Horizon well was about 5,100 feet. The Mexico oil regulator is criticizing Pemex for having no experience drilling at such depths and for being unprepared for a deep water spill. Pemex is responsible for a 1979 oil spill that spewed 3.5 million barrels in the Gulf. New evidence claims that coral reef in the Gulf have suffered irreparable damage from BP's spill in 2010. A Pakistani lawyer and critic of the U.S. drone strikes in Pakistan is being denied entry to the United States. Shahzad Akbar was invited to speak at the International Drone Summit, but hasn't received a visa, which he applied for last May. Denying a visa to people like me is denying Americans their right to know what the U.S. government and its intelligence community are doing to children, women, and other civilians in this part of the world, Akbar said. Akbar, who at one point worked for the U.S. government, helped a Pakistani man sue the CIA and U.S. Secretary of Defense for the wrongful deaths of his son and brother. The current U.S. government has launched six times more drone strikes in Pakistan alone than the Bush administration did throughout their entire tenure. Those are the alert headlines. Now for Around the Left for the week of... April 12th. Occupy Toronto will be hosting general assemblies every Monday from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. outdoors at Cloud Gardens, Richardson Street West between Young and Bay. The general assemblies will use a new format, a consensus building process with a 90% decision-making rule, a safe space agreement, and trained facilitation. In addition, we will begin to explore language around decolonization to supplement the Occupy meme in order to address serious concerns regarding its associations. If you have any questions, email occupytoreboot at gmail.com. That's occupytoreboot at gmail.com. Gord Hill author of the 500 Years of Resistance comic book, launches his new graphic novel, The Anti-Capitalist Resistance Comic Book, from the WTO to the G20, at Vancouver's Spartacus Books on April 19th, from 7 o'clock p.m. to 9 o'clock p.m. Startling and politically astute, 
Hill's new novel documents the history of capitalism as well as anti-capitalist and anti-globalization movements around the world from the 1999 Battle of Seattle against the World Trade Organization to the Toronto G20 summit in 2010. As the Occupy movements around the world continue to unfold, the anti-capitalist resistance comic book is a deft, eye-opening look at the new class warfare and those brave enough to wage the battle. To find out more about Gord Hill and his books, visit the Arsenal Pulp Press website at arsenalpulp.com. Public dissent is an essential and an integral pillar of a healthy and a functioning democracy. What is the status of dissent in Canada? Is it alive and well? On April 21st, from 3 o'clock p.m. to 4.30 p.m. at the Ottawa Public Library, Rick Sluton, award-winning Toronto Star columnist and longtime dissident, will share his thoughts on dissent in Canada. He will also be available for signing copies of his latest book, Keeping the Public in Public Education, which will be officially launched in Montreal the day before. The book signing will begin at 2.15 p.m. prior to the lecture. Advanced tickets are $15 or $10 for students. Tickets at the door will be $20. Seating is limited, so get your ticket in advance at Octopus Books or by ordering online at prism-magazine.com. Attend the Ontario Day of Action Against Cuts on April 21st at 3 o'clock p.m. at Queen's Park in Toronto. At a time when Ontarians are in desperate need of economic recovery, the cuts recommended by banker Don Drummond will jeopardize every aspect of society. The Ontario Federation of Labour, OFL, is working with community groups and organizations across Ontario to call on workers, retirees, students, and community members to join a mass rally to demand prosperity, not austerity. Help to mobilize your members, your families, and your communities to stop the cuts and put Ontario on the road to economic recovery. Our collective future depends on it. Tell Premier McGuinty to build Ontario, not tear it apart. For those in Winnipeg, on April 22nd, take to the streets for the 9th Annual 7th Generation Walk for Mother Earth in support of grassroots Indigenous-led campaigns to preserve the Earth for future generations. There will be speakers at Central Park from 1 to 2 p.m., followed by a walk to the Forks via Memorial Park. The walk will arrive at the Udina Circle at the Forks at 3.30 p.m. for the annual spring water ceremony and a free picnic. This is a garbage-free family event. Bring drums, banners, cups, plates, and voices. For those in Caledonia, on April 28th at 2 o'clock p.m., come to a march and rally in support of Indigenous land rights. The Haudenosaunee of the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory invite you to join them and march for peace, respect, and friendship. The gathering will take place at Edinburgh Square, a Haudenosaunee park across from the Caledonia Fairgrounds in the township of Caledonia. The march will move down Argyle Street to the site known as Cannon Staten where there will be a potluck, live music, games, activities, and discussions to which all are invited. For more information, email kanonh 
S-T-A-T-O-N at gmail.com or visit april28coalition.wordpress.com. Toronto's 26th annual Socialist May Day celebration, Fighting for the 99%, will take place April 28th from 7 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Speakers will include Jorge Soberon, Consul General of Cuba in Toronto, John Clark of the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, Farid Ayad, National President of the Canadian Arab Federation. There will be entertainment and delicious food and drinks. For details, call the Free Times Cafe at 416-967-1078. There will also be a literature and CDs display, a raffle, and other surprises. Admission is $10, $5 for non-wage, or pay what you can. That's all for Around the Left for this week. As of the time of this recording, Tuesday, April 10th, shelling was being reported and deaths continuing to mount past the time when, according to the terms of a UN-brokered ceasefire agreement, a pullout of military forces from Syrian towns and villages was supposed to have taken effect. With reports of the human rights situation continuing to deteriorate, UK Foreign Minister William Hague has warned the Assad regime that, quote, we will be ready to intensify our support for the Syrian opposition and to support others seeking to do the same. To uh, speak more on the subject, we're going to be speaking with Stephen Lendeman, who's written on the subject of Syria, as well as the dynamics surrounding that uh, country, and uh, try to put it in a uh, regional and global context. Stephen Lendeman is a writer and a broadcaster. Uh, he hosts the program program, the Progressive Radio Hour, and uh, thank you for joining us, Steve Lendeman. Thank you, Michael. Delighted to be with you. Progressive Radio News Hour. <laughs> oh, my apologies. <laughs> On the Progressive Radio Network. Okay, so Steve, uh, could you tell us, first of all, this, uh, the, this uh, peace plan itself, uh, could you just give us a, a, a little bit of a breakdown of what's in that plan? That uh, well, the peace plan, it? Michael, is a sham. That's that's really I, I I could sum it up literally that way. It 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 is sham cover for Washington's imperial agenda, and the agenda comes down to two words: regime change. Why regime change? Because all independent states, Syria is an independent state. It doesn't take orders from Washington. No nation should take orders from another nation. Uh, it should it should act on its own sovereignty, but many do. All the ones in NATO, 28 countries or so, are really, really shocking and disgusting, I find it. The big powers run NATO. You know, Washington, Britain, France, mainly Washington, Britain, France, Italy, and you get you get so many tiny countries involved in it. And NATO was never about uh, a defense; it was always for offense. And uh, of course, in more recent years, it became a killing machine. But the Assad government, which is an authoritarian government, and it, it very definitely needs a lot of reforms. Yet most Syrians support it. 
because they know the alternative is much worse if Washington gets control of their country. And again, the name of the game is regime change, and, and, and the insurgency. Syria was calm, was peaceful. Uh, you could go there and, uh, and probably, you know, just chat with people and get some idea of what people felt about the Assad government, and you probably would have found out that the, that the criticism is uh, there are always criticisms of governments, the best of them, but probably the criticism would have been largely muted, certainly nothing to indicate that there'd be an uprising. Well, people wrongly call it a revolution. It certainly is not a revolution any more than the Libya situation last year was a revolution. It was an externally generated insurgency, Western-generated mainly Washington-generated, and the idea is get rid of Assad, get a regime in that will take orders from Washington. And and uh, and uh, Kofi Annan, as soon as I heard he was appointed the envoy to come up with a peace plan, I just blanched, Michael. Uh, for 10 years, as U.N. Secretary General, he never lifted a finger to stop imperial wars he supported them one after another, and he was appointed envoy in this business for the exact same reason. Uh, Washington deplores peace and stability. It needs violence. It needs instability to, to, as a pretext to point fingers the wrong way and work for what it wants, getting rid of the regime it doesn't want, replacing it with one it does. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Steve, there is, uh, I mean, regardless of what the international powers and the U.S. in particular may want, there does seem to be opposition within Syria Who, in, in, in the person of the Syrian National Council. Who is the Syrian National Council? What, uh, what sort of uh, backing do they have from uh, the popular, uh, what sort of popular support do they have? Well, number one, there are a number of opposition groups but the nonviolent ones deplore what's going on. They want no part of this. And, and there have been a couple of meetings, the so-called friends of Syria, uh, with friends like that who needs enemies, as they say. Uh, well, the, 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 the nonviolent groups, or at least the prominent ones, uh, weren't even invited. Or they didn't, I mean, even if they were invited, they didn't want to go. They didn't, they didn't want any part of, 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 of war planning. To, to generate more violence in their country. But the Syrian National Council, along with the so-called Free Syrian Army, these are Western constructs. They're put together by, by uh, Washington and other Western powers. They certainly have, do not have the interests of Syrians uh, in mind. They have their own interests in mind. And this is the exact same thing that went on in Libya. The uh, the uh, the Libyan uh, the National Transitional Council uh, exact same thing. These these people were recruited, they were bribed. I mean, people who may have had some beefs with the government in Libya, uh, people in Syria who may have some disagreements the same way, and and they enlist these people. Washington and Britain, France enlisted these people to get involved, 
and uh, they they can be uh, they have these countries have lots of money to, to to throw around. They can offer them a million. They can offer them ten million. They can offer them anything. You know, join us. Uh, you will be very handsomely uh, uh, compensated for your services, and you get people who are willing to go along with this, including the ones who are leading the military side of it. And uh, and uh, again. Uh, it, it, the mercenaries, that's what it comes down to. The mercenaries, and they certainly are opposed to the interests of the Syrian people. And, of course, this has also been going on now for over a year with literally no end of it in sight. Now, I notice in your article uh, you mention uh, writer Patrick Seal. And uh, yeah. he, you, you seem, there seems to be a, a sense that he has that... Uh, Whatever the the United United States, uh, may, whatever their plans might be for trying to control Syria, that uh, any kind of intervention is just going to result in some sort of chaos. Uh, is it possible that that the prospect of this uh, plan being doomed to failure might stay the hand of uh, foreign powers like the United States and its allies? Well, you know, the U.S. major media, I call them scoundrels. Uh, we know whether it's print media or broadcast, radio or TV, they simply tell the story the way the powers that be want it to be told. So it doesn't really matter what's going on on the ground. They tell the story their own way. It's completely distorted. It's, it's, not, it's not news and information or opinion. It's propaganda. You know, I, I mean, my God, uh, and I, I remember so well in the run-up to the 2003 Iraq War, the New York Times' main journalist, Judith Miller, uh, she had front-page free feature stories basically promoting war against Iraq. Uh, she literally uh, uh, was doing little more than, than handing out uh, Pentagon press releases or publishing P- Pentagon press releases. So you've got the same thing going on now. Well, you had it last year against Gaddafi. You've got it this year against Assad in Syria. And and the stuff that comes over the media are just bald-faced lies, absolute bald-faced lies. The Gaddafi government really was better than the Syrian government. But but both of their governments, certainly far from perfect, I would never be one to, to call their governments perfect, uh, I would much rather live under a much better government. Although Gaddafi, my goodness, uh, Gaddafi gave uh, benefits to the Libyan people that Americans can only dream of, free health care, first world, free health care, free education, free stipends for newly married people. It goes on and on. No homelessness in Libya. Uh, just marvelous things that went on in the country. If you crossed him, you got in very serious trouble. But the, but the people who, who uh, ran their lives and weren't critical of the government, and really, uh, considering what the government did for them, uh, they, for the most part, didn't have much of a reason to be critical with them. Uh, Syria is not the same, doesn't have the same oil wealth, so can't do for, for the Syrian people what Gaddafi did for Libya. And Syria is also a much bigger country. Libya, about 6 million people. Syria, I think, about 28 million and again, no, uh, without the, the, the great, Syria has oil, but not the extent that, that, well, that Libya has. if it doesn't have oil like Iraq or Syria uh, or Libya, then, then what is the, uh, the aim of the U.S.? I mean, all propaganda aside, what is it they're trying to achieve, and will they achieve it? 
Well, again, they want to get rid of all independent regimes, but the crown jewel of the Middle East is Iran. Iran. And, of course, Iran is extremely oil and gas rich. Iran may be uh, the number one gas supplier in the world. It's either number one or number two. There have been huge discoveries recently. Russia has been number one for a long time, but there have been huge discoveries, I believe, offshore. And uh, if there is uh, large, as uh, some people think, then Iran could be the number one, uh, the world's number one gas supplier. And I think it's the number three oil supplier. But who knows what hasn't been discovered yet. And it's the kind of oil that's most valued, the easily, the easily found, uh, the cheap to refine, uh, the so-called light sweet oil. That's the oil that Libya has. Well, again, Iran is the crown jewel. I mean, the Western, uh, well, I, <laughs> if Washington let them, the Western oil companies could have done business with Iran a long time ago. So they're dying to get back in. They should really blame Washington, don't blame Tehran. But that, that's the crown jewel. And the road to Tehran runs through Damascus. The, the game, as far as I can see it, and I'm no military expert, Michael, but the game, as far as I can see it, is de-link the two countries, go after the easier target first. Syria is no easy target. Gaddafi was much, much easier. Syria is no pushover. But Iran is far less of a pushover. But if you can take down Assad and get a new government installed, then, then Iran becomes isolated. Isolation uh, means uh, they're, they're weaker, not militarily weaker, but they lose a key ally. I mean, imagine if America lost Britain and France. America would still have its powerful military, but it would lose its two most important military allies besides Israel. That's the situation with with uh, Syria and Iran. So the name of the game is get rid of Assad and then concentrate on Iran. Well, uh, Steve, uh, just one last question. How do you see this situation being resolved? That's a very good question. I wish I had the answer to it. Assad absolutely has the upper hand now. The, the big question is, will NATO intervene? That's the big question. Or even, even, even some of the NATO countries. Turkey is a NATO country, and Turkey is a powerful country. It borders on Syria. Does Turkey really want a war with Syria? I mean, it's hard to imagine. Uh, it, it could get involved in one with a lot of help. But if it, get, if it attacks Syria, Syria can easily attack back. Does Turkey want that destruction that, that death toll on its soil, to imagine that it wants something like that. But it's a NATO country, and if it gets involved, you can bet it would have a lot of support. Washington absolutely wants regime change. I don't think Washington has the slightest compunction about another war. I like to, I like to say Obama is just dying for another war, and, uh, and, uh, and Syria is one that uh, I think could be handled with Washington and Britain and France, the same coalition that went after Gaddafi. Uh, they could take down Syria. Uh, uh, the, the the insurgents on the ground, they don't have a chance against Assad, just like the insurgents in Libya didn't have a chance against Gaddafi. But they had an air force. If the, if the Syrian insurgents have an air force, that, that's the game changer. And, and whether it'll happen or not, 
Uh, I suspect that it will happen to, to some extent. Either an Air Force or NATO getting involved. There's no authorizing Security Council resolution. There was one against Gaddafi, the no-fly zone. A no-fly zone means war, absolutely means war, because to enforce a no-fly zone, you have to take out military command and control. You have to take out weapons that can target aircraft. That means war. Every general knows that. Uh, there's no fly zone. There's no Security Council resolution. I don't think there will be one. Turkey wants to establish, maybe wants to establish, uh, a, uh, secu- a uh, safe haven zone. <laughs> it wants to do it in Syrian territory. Syria won't tolerate that. Would that be a reason for war? Possibly. If, if uh, something more violent kicks up, if Turkey decides they will establish uh, a free zone. Uh, but again, the key question is, will the Western powers get involved directly? Will they create some kind of an incident, maybe, as a casus belli to get involved? Steve, I'm afraid we have to leave it there, but I want to thank you very much for that analysis. Uh, We're going to definitely keep an eye on the situation and see how it develops. Uh, Thanks for joining us on Alert. Oh, my pleasure. Delighted to be on. Alert has been speaking with Stephen Lendeman. He is a writer and broadcaster. Uh, He is the host of the Progressive Radio News Hour on the Progressive Radio Network. In our ongoing coverage of the uh, federal budget and its impact on Canadians, we are joined now by Adrienne Naylor. She's a member of the Feminist Action Committee of the Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly. Uh, she arg- organizes with the St. Clair West chapter of Toronto Stop the Cuts and is an editor of Upping the Ante. She recently wrote an article, Economic Crisis and Austerity, the Stranglehold of Can- on Canada's Families, and has been posted on the Canadian Dimension website. So uh, thank you for joining us, Adri. Oh, my pleasure. Could you uh, maybe, to, to, referring to your article, you uh, mention he session and she session. Could you maybe explain uh, what is meant by those terms? Sure. Yeah, um... So one way that progressive economists have been have been talking about the gem, the gendered impact of austerity in terms of job losses and also cuts to services has been to talk about what they call a he session and and, and a she session. Um, and what they mean by a he session is um, primarily job cuts that happened at the beginning of the recession. In t- beginning in 2008 in the private sector. So we can talk about, for example, um, massive cuts in, in manufacturing. Since 2003, more than 500,000 manufacturing jobs in Canada have been lost. And just in the first eight months of the 2008 recession, 370,000 workers were laid off in the private sector. And in that context, about 71% of them were men. So that's what they mean by a he session. And a she session is referring to the attacks that we're seeing now on public sector workers and the kind of concurrent cuts to public services and programs that they, that they provide. So that would include cuts to health care, to education, child care, libraries, social assistance, things like that. 
Okay. And the reason that they call it a she session is because so many more of the the workers that are impacted by those layoffs are women, and also because the cuts that that they uh, that they include overwhelmingly affect women as well. And you you seem to be arguing that uh, the the cuts disproportionately affect women. Uh, could you maybe uh, expand on some examples of uh, what you're talking about there? Absolutely. Um, so what I'm saying is that the the cuts impact women because they are primarily cuts to services that were won in previous um, in previous struggles by workers and especially by women workers um, to kind of offload some of the work of reproducing families and reproducing um, children off of the backs of individual women or individual families onto the state. So that would include, you know, subsidies for child care so that, that um, women can access support to put their, their kids in public child care. It would include, um, you know, things like in-school nutrition programs or after-school programs or library expansion and programs, things that formerly were in the domain overwhelmingly of women to provide. And in some ways, that, that burden was was lightened a little bit by having those things be provided by the state. So when cuts are made, it's an effort, I argue, for um, for those responsibilities to be shifted back onto the working class and because of the way that that, that sort of socially reproductive work, or work is divided among the working class, it's an effort by the state to push it back onto women. Mm. And uh, this—it's also been mentioned that uh, the the federal government seems to be offloading a lot of uh, responsibilities at, at lower levels, uh, like the provinces and and municipalities. So, um, is this sort of like part of that same trend of uh, some issues that may not be that clear on the balance books, uh, but you know, women essentially end up bearing more of the brunt of those. Uh, of, of the cost. Well, yeah, for sure, and and I mean, at the same time, there have been cuts at the municipal level and at the provincial level as well, so that the responsibility is downloaded onto more local forms of government. But then those governments just cut that anyways. So, for example, in the work that um, we've been doing with Toronto Stop the Cuts, at, at least in the beginning, the the main target um, or the main thing that we were opposing were municipal cuts. But it's part of the same beast, like whether it's cuts to, to transit or libraries at a municipal level or cuts to child care subsidies or um, health care provisions or, or um, old age security and pensions at a federal level. Mm-hmm. It's like I would argue it's all part of the same beast. Yeah. And you also write that uh, the Harper government is using debt and uh, the... Uh you know, that this whole economic crisis is an ideological weapon that's forcing this agenda down uh, the throats of Canadians. Um, could, could you maybe possibly reply to that criticism that, uh, you know, the fact is that we do have uh, bills to pay, that uh, the country does have, uh, you know, have to pay its debts. I mean, how do you, how do we address that without some sort of... Uh, what makes it like what makes the argument that we need to be fiscally responsible on a on a national level 
and pay our debts and not have out-of-control spending, what what makes that an argument that people latch onto is that Canadians, people living in Canada, are on the whole saddled with enormous debt. And I was saying, you know, that, that debt takes the form of student debt, of bank debt, of mortgages, um, hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt that, that people are dealing with. And so when when the government, like, appeals to, to that anxiety around debt, people are familiar with that. But it's, the argument is, is not, um, it's not really an honest one, because the options that the government has available to it to, to deal with deficits and debt are so very different than what individual families can do. So, for example, the government could raise taxes. They could, um, and I don't mean just raising taxes in the way that the uh, Ontario NDP wants to make, like basically a nominal increase on tax as a way to support the, the liberal provincial budget, but like a meaningful tax on the most wealthy Canadians, a tax, um, a stop to tax cuts for the wealthy, which included tax cuts to Electromotive right before they picked up and left shop in, in London, Ontario. And the other thing, too, that I would say is that um, that the idea that what, what it means to be fiscally responsible means to cut services that allow people to, to, you know, to literally live in some cases, um, and yet that there's suddenly enough money to buy, you know, F-35 fighter jets. It's really and to to balloon the the DND budget things like that. It's I mean it's it's a pretty to me it's a pretty offensive argument because it takes advantage of the fears that that um, regular Canadians have in times for them that are really economically precarious and they use them to manipulate people into into you know further. Pr- participating in in the cuts that that affect their their ability to reproduce themselves. Mm-hmm. So would you agree then that there is uh, more going on here than just uh, uh, an inadvisable um, approach to managing our finances that this is a, a a transformative budget and if so what would our country be transforming into? Well, I, I agree that it is a transformative moment because it. I think that what becomes clear the more we think about this is that these austerity measures aren't just a response to like this particular crisis or that particular crisis, but rather a sustained. And I would say part of um, part of part of a sustained over the past few decades effort on behalf of capital and on behalf of, of the Canadian state and, and other national states to, re, to, to have a massive attack on working people and the way that they're doing it in this case, in addition to, to massive job loss, is to, to force Canadians to, to take on the responsibility for, for reproducing themselves in, in ways that in previous times had been provided by the state. Adri, uh, in terms of, uh, we've got a majority conservative government here. What would you be inclined to recommend in terms of uh, challenging uh, this budget and challenging this agenda? Uh, 
Well, I think that it has to be a really a really multi multi pronged approach. Um, I think that a lot of it has to do with you know when when austerity measures come down, whether it's in bargaining for um, municipal workers or other public sector workers, um, whether it's when a budget is passed at a city or provincial or or I guess all of these have, have now have now come down, um, or national level to to really fight back um, in a, in a sustained and coordinated way against those. And it, we've seen that be like you know we've seen that be somewhat effective in Toronto with regard to the the city budget. Um, not to say that we won on 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 every point, but the cuts that were being proposed by um, by Ford. They weren't able to go through because there was such a sustained popular outcry against them. But I would say, in addition to this type of fight back, which would would mean to obviously include organized labor, um, workers who aren't organized in unions, service users, um, employed and unemployed people, students. We also need to, and I would argue that this is yet again where the the question of um, a gender analysis comes into it, is to think about what kind of services are actually needed to allow Canadians to sustain themselves. And it's a question of putting back on um, the national agenda or back into public discourse the idea that... um, that you know, childcare is is something that's required for for Canadians. Like, it's it's not realistic in this in this economic climate for people to be able to work the two or three, you know, poorly paid jobs that they have to to make ends meet, and also take care of their two or three kids. And the same would go with um, with supports for for libraries or after school programs or school lunch or breakfast programs, um, and. Similarly, uh, it needs we need to be having a really honest discussion about how we provide for elderly people in, in Canada. You know, making sure that OAS is at a level that will allow people who have worked their whole lives to live like a, a dignified life in their retirement when they're no longer able to work. Mm-hmm. Well, and oh, sorry, no, uh, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I was uh, just going to say that's uh, probably a, a whole uh, other uh, issue that uh, needs to be addressed, but uh, I, I think we've got to pretty much leave it at that. So I, right. I want to thank you very much, Adri, for, for sharing those thoughts with us. Oh, it's really my pleasure, Michael. And uh, Alert has been speaking with Adri Naylor. She's a member of the Feminist Action Committee of the Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly and also the author of a recent article, uh, Economic Crisis and Austerity, the Stranglehold on, Hold on Canadian, Canada's Families. It uh, was posted recently on the Canadian Dimension website. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is a Weapon. And today's show is about anthems. There's good guy anthems and there's bad guy anthems. And You know, if you can create the musical background to your philosophical point of view, if you can create a song that epitomizes your idea, it's amazing how much power that is, how you can move millions of people. We're going to start with a song from back in the American Civil War. Here is The Battle Cry of Freedom. We will rally round 
once again Shouting the battle cry of freedom We will rally from the hillside Gather from the plain Shouting the battle cry of freedom The union forever Hurrah, boys, hurrah Down with the traitor And up with the star While we rally round the flag Boys, rally once again Shouting the battle cry of freedom We are springing to the call Of our brothers gone before Shouting the battle cry of freedom And we'll fill the vacant ranks With a million free men more Shouting the battle cry of freedom The union forever Hurrah, boys, hurrah Down with the traitor And up with the star While we rally round the flag Boys, rally once again Shouting the battle cry of Shouting the battle cry of freedom And although they may be poor Not a man shall be a slave Shouting the battle cry of freedom The union forever Hurrah, boys, hurrah Down with the traitor And up with the star While we rally round the flag Boys, rally once again Shouting the battle cry of freedom While we rally round the flag Boys, rally once again Shouting the battle cry of freedom
Sinead O'Connor singing the Foggy Dew, and before that, the battle cry of freedom sung by the Weavers. The next thing you're going to hear on the show is a song called Ragputi, if I'm pronouncing it right. It was, as I understand, Gandhi's favorite song, and what it's about is about unity between Hindu and Muslim, and Gandhi, of course, was very, very much an advocate of that, and he tried to keep all of India together, but it became a couple different countries. The most interesting thing about this tune is I originally learned it from the playing of one Peter Seeger, who played it on the 12-string guitar, and I fell in love with it melodically, and when the movie came out, I went nuts for this tune. I hope you enjoyed it. It's a real sit-down-and-listen kind of tune. Here is Ragputi. Yeah. 
That is the movie ending song from the 1982 film Gandhi. The entire composition is built around that song, Ragputi. I remember going to the movie and watching this and sitting there and listening to the end of the movie, listening to the music as the credits rolled, and people were getting up and leaving. But I was transfixed, and I frankly still am. Now to finish off today's show, the anthem that probably means more to me than anything else. It's one that I've known since I was a little kid, and I really hope that you enjoy it. When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. 
They never toiled to work, but without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel could turn. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever. Greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of armies, magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever. My favorite anthem, Solidarity Forever. And that's it for this week, folks. This is Mitch Podolik. The show is Music is the Weapon. And Solidarity Forever all of you. That's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear the show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producers are Michael Welch and Tommy Allen. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. With technical production by Andrew Valby. I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.